special dedication to those who listen to this program from across the nation. From the heart and soul of Wendell Wallace, you have my greatest respect and admiration. Wendell's World and Sports is a podcast like no other, made for the listening pleasure for my sisters and brothers. My passion for the sports happenings of the world today overflowing, my skills and talent will always be showing a king like bernard my podcast will be held in his highest regard hope that my listening base will be reached from near and afar my episodes in this greatness are like that of tom brady's my podcast is great for all the fellas and ladies you say my podcast isn't the best man you must be crazy holding up the champions cup like the tampa bay lightning hold up the cup of stanley sacking the competition more times than dexter manley i will deal with the fools and haters quite handedly and quite candidly I'm that damn good. So please, stay in your lane. What I'm doing, you can't be a partaker. If you even think about missing with my show, in the words of The Undertaker, you will rest in peace. Wendell's World and Sports download, subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, enjoy anywhere, anyway, anyhow, you listen or watch your favorite podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Bruin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, que passe, shalom, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, namaste, good morning, good abend. Welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast anywhere where you're listening to your favorite podcast on Amazon, on iTunes, on Spotify, on iHeart. Go ahead, do me a favor, download, subscribe, rate, Review, most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast. But very much appreciated. And if you want to see this handsome devil do a thing, speaking about what's going on in the world of sports, head over to my YouTube channel, Wendell's World in Sports. Go ahead, subscribe. Go ahead and like. Trying to get that bad boy off the ground so it would be much appreciated if you did that. So, Wendell's World in Sports with yours truly, starring the one and only from Washington, D.C., Silver Spring, Maryland, born and raised, born, Maryland born, Maryland bred, and when I die, I'll be Maryland dead, Wendell Wallace. Thank you so much. All right, let's go ahead and start talking about what is happening in the world of sports. You know, right now I'm recording this on July 18th. I'm doing this on a Monday morning. So, as of right now, Major League Baseball is taking a hiatus they're having their all-star festivities they're going to be having the all-star game no i'm not going to be watching the Derek jeter uh situation documentary on uh, espn so it's going to be interesting to see what i'm going to be watching tonight before we get to wwe's raw don't even know if i'm going to be able to uh take down three hours of that nonsense what vince has been putting down right now when he's not up there sexually assaulting women allegedly but, um, you know, this is a situation where, as I mentioned before on my last video, when I'm speaking about 
at the start of NFL training camps. The new year for sports is happening in a situation where, hey, you know what, if you need to get some things done as far as taking care of some chores, making sure you spend more time with your kids, making sure you spend more time with your parents, making sure that you go ahead and you clear the deck so when football starts for real in September, you'll be rip, roaring, ready to go on your Saturdays and Sundays with minimal interruptions to go ahead and watch your favorite team, to go ahead and make sure that your bets are placed, make sure that your overs and your parlays are good and rip-roaring, ready to go. This now is the time to do it. The NBA Summer League just ended, and now we have a little bit of, I don't know what's going on right now. I mean, in terms of the everyday besides Major League Baseball. Football training camps are starting up, but uh, other than that, man, it's just kind of a nice time for uh Someone to take that vacation, go to a vacation Bible camp and uh, get your orders, get your things together and do all those good things and go on out and see the world, learn some things, talk to some folks who are different from you, go learn, go educate so you can go ahead and uh, introduce your your kids to uh, a whole new way of life in terms of understanding and those good things. So there's a lot of options that we can do in terms of moving this ball forward uh, in a positive way that we're probably not going to have the opportunity to do once um, the month of September rolls around and we've got NFL football and we've got college football and then we'll have the NBA and then we'll have the NHL and then we'll have Major League Baseball and there's playoffs. And I went over all of that in my last uh, podcast, so you get my drift. The Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. But what I want to do today starting off the first segment of the uh, program is to talk about the ever-changing, but not changing just yet, season of football, college football. It's on the horizon. The first game of the season, as I mentioned before, my last podcast starts August 27th. Man, as of this recording, that's 50 days from now. Preseason rankings, according to Phil Steele and others, are out. Same old, same old as you're speaking about. Who are the top teams? Who are the elite teams and such? Alabama. No, not Georgia. For most of the prognosticators, it's the preseason number one. So you have Alabama, you have Utah, you have Ohio State, you have uh, the Blue Bloods, you have Georgia, of course. Alabama last season, 13-2. and Heisman Trophy winner Bryce Young back for his junior year. Leader of the offense that was seventh. In the nation overall, averaging somewhere around 488 yards per game. Sixth in scoring, averaging around 40 points per game. Third third in third down conversion. So the offense last season for Alabama, while in some spots inconsistent, was overall dominant. When you're speaking about Bryce Young at the quarterback position, 47 touchdown passes, only seven interceptions, as I mentioned before, winning the Heisman Trophy. Moving into this season, when you're speaking about a team like Alabama, and you're speaking about a program like Alabama, and you're speaking about the run that Nick Saban has been on as the coach for Alabama after stumbling just a bit his first couple of years when he got the job leaving the Miami Dolphins to go to uh, the Crimson Tide, that uh, when you're speaking about Alabama, just like when you're speaking about the Blue Bloods, when you're speaking about the elites of college basketball, or college football, excuse me, They don't uh, rebuild, they reload. So when you're speaking about some of the things on offense for Alabama moving forward in terms of replacing NFL players that were drafted along the offensive line, 
trying to replenish the wide receiver position. You're speaking about an offensive line last year, while underperforming, was still able to have the statistical success that I just mentioned before in terms of their dominance as far as yards per game, scoring per game, third down conversions and such, and having their quarterback win the Heisman Trophy. So while the offensive line last year, and that included a couple of uh, first-round NFL draft picks, didn't perform to the normal of what offensive lines in the past, in the near recent past of Alabama's dominance, while the offensive line didn't play up to that level, Still, it was a team, it was a unit that was uh, pretty efficient in the overall dominance of what they did on the field. So, replacing some of those linemen, again, when you're Alabama, you don't rebuild, you replace. So, those guys on the offensive line at the wide receiver position who were drafted in the first round, drafted in the second round of the uh, NFL draft, don't worry, the replacements, if you don't worry, like like I worry. If you're an Alabama fan, I'm quite sure you're not going to worry. Don't worry. You replace NFL draft picks with NFL talent. The greatness, the advantage when you're securing number one recruiting classes year after year or top two or three recruiting classes year after year after year. So when you're speaking about, for instance, the wide receiver positions and you lose Jamison Williams and you lose John Mechie the third to the NFL. But then you got coming in a former Georgia wide receiver, Jermaine Burton, former Louisville wide receiver, Terrell Harrell, Tyler Harrell. It's going to replace them. Both of those guys at their former schools did quite well. The defense for Alabama should be elite with the best player in college football, maybe the number one pick in the NFL draft for 2023 when you're speaking about outside linebacker Will Anderson, who truly is. Bryce Young might get all the NIL deals or he might be making the most money out of all of that. He might be the best well-known and he might be all of this this in the bag of chips. But to make that team run consistently, efficiently and such, from a player's standpoint, outside linebacker Will Anderson, the leader of not just the defense, but the leader of the team. And as I mentioned before, maybe probably the best player in college football and Going into this season, the player who is projected to be the number one pick in the 2023 uh, NFL draft have been compared to uh, Vaughn Miller, outside linebacker. So, yeah, 17 and a half sacks last season, 34 and a half uh, tackles for losses. So, hey, man, you've got that defense. You've got the secondary for Alabama being deep and experienced. So, yeah, while there are some deficiencies in terms of talent lost, again, when you're Alabama, you move in and you replenish with four and five star recruits. That's the reason why year in and year out, Alabama is um, always regarded as either the number one or number two ranked team in the country. And despite the loss that they have to an ever building towards consistent greatness, Georgia team under Kirby Smart starting the season, they are still uh, the number one team in the country preseason. We haven't played any games yet. So we don't know how accurate that is, but we're speaking about Alabama here. We're speaking about some of the weapons that they have both on offense and defense as playmakers and such. Are you going to doubt Alabama's going to lose, what, in a season two games at the very most? I doubt it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Michigan, Ohio State, Georgia, Utah, Notre Dame, 
Clemson, Texas A&M after that historic recruiting class that they had, which caused Nick Saban to go out there and say that, you know what, Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher bought every one of those players from Philadelphia, from the Washington, D.C. area. Really, someone from Philadelphia, someone from the DMV was really going to go down to College Station? Really? Really? Well, I mean, Bryce Younger from Alabama, excuse me, Bryce Younger from L.A., and he went out to um, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So, really, Nick, you're going to go there with that. But because of the haul in recruiting that Texas A&M had, they are now uh, plateauing, or they are now elevating themselves up to top 10 stature in maybe, maybe, just possibly, they can find themselves a good quarterback, uh, sneaky team to be looking at when we're speaking about which team where the prognosticators didn't expect to have playing for a national championship or playing in the college football playoffs, which team is going to surprise along with Oklahoma State and some others, it could be Texas A&M. But again, when you're speaking about the elites, when you're speaking about going into the season, starting off with the preseason, top 10, top 11, top 12, again, along with the Clemsons, along with the Ohio States, along with the Georgias, along with the Alabamas, along with the Michigans, along with the Notre Dame, who seem to be fixtures for the most part in the uh, rankings. You also have someone now like Texas A&M, who by the preseason rankings and by the conference that they play in, early put themselves in the position to uh, make that move to be vying for the college football playoffs and for the championship if everything Fall right, falls right for them. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could with us be with us. The Ohio State Buckeyes went 11 to two last season, having the best young offensive talent in the country. When you're speaking about quarterback, when you're speaking about wide receivers, when you're speaking about running backs, when you're thinking about most of those guys being either freshmen, redshirt freshmen, or sophomores or juniors. Marvin Harrison's kid. Uh, plays with uh, plays wide receiver for that team. You're, you're speaking about the uh, team from Columbus, Ohio, having an NFL first-round prospect at quarterback, the best NFL prospect at wide receiver, and Jackson Smith, the Enigma, redshirt uh, sophomore this season, Stroud, threw for over 4,000 yards, over 4,400 yards, had 44 touchdowns, only six interceptions last season, started off a little bit slow, replacing uh, Justin Fields, first time as a starter and such. So we started off a little bit, uh, shall we say, shaky. But uh, once the Rose Bowl came around and uh, he was doing his gig, uh, you know, going into this season, looks like this is going to be a guy that's going to uh, be a candidate for the Heisman Trophy. Nigma had over 1,600 yards receiving, playing, and this was playing with uh, first-round draft picks Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, had 347 yards receiving and three touchdowns in the Rose Bowl. Trayvon Henderson and Mian Williams combined for over 1,700 rushing yards, almost seven yards per carry. So on offense, man, the offensive line is set up Offensive line is there. The weapons are going to be there in terms of the uh, offense of Ohio State is going to be fine. They might be the most explosive offense in college football this season. In fact, if everything comes together and the improvements at the skill position uh, continue like the way that they're projected to be or the way that they should be, but you're looking at a team on offense like Ohio State that could go down for one season as one of the more explosive historical 
uh, uh, teams or offensive teams over the last 10, 15, 20 years if Stroud and Nigma and, and uh, Henderson and Williams really do their thing and improve at the level where many people expect them to be. The defense is going to be the key. Now, depending upon how explosive and great the offense is, we don't need to have the Ohio State offense replicate the dominance of the Georgia defense of last uh, season, but you're speaking about a defense that needs to improve. They got themselves a new defensive coordinator. First two games of the season, remember last year? When Ohio State played against uh, Minnesota in Oregon, and they allowed 913 yards, 472 of them on the ground, scored, uh, allowed the, the uh, Gophers and the Oregon Ducks to score 66 points. Then they kind of rectified a little bit after some shaky performances. And then by the time they hit Michigan State, when they blew out Michigan State at the time that was vying for a position to be in the college football playoffs and Ohio State blew them out. Then they thought everything was copacetic. Then they thought everything was great until they ran into Michigan and Michigan beat them up. Michigan took their lunch. Michigan pushed them into the urinal. Michigan put them in the locker and closed the door. Michigan punked them. Michigan beat them up. And then following that, even though they won the Rose Bowl, it was a situation the last two games of the season against the Wolverines and the Utes. That defense from Ohio State allowed 950 yards, 523 of them rushing, and 87 points combined. So yeah, man, on the totality of the season, on defense for Ohio State, you're speaking about a team that was around 81st in success rate, Allowed 93, uh, 93rd in passing, 71st in rushing, 123rd in the red zone TD rate. I mean, this is a situation where you're speaking about Ohio State, y'all. We're speaking about Ohio State, a team that needs to be vying for championships every single year. A team in Ohio State with the expectations to where, look, man, we ain't interested in Rose Bowls. We ain't interested in Fiesta Bowls. We ain't interested in Sugar Bowls unless they're part of the college football playoffs. Last season, breaking in a whole bunch of new players, especially at the skill position, in individual accomplishments, those guys did well. But when you're speaking about that team from Ohio State last year, it was considered by many a disappointment. And you can mainly focus on the defense as to the numero uno reason why that happened. So again, with the offense coming back this season, with the weapons that the offense will have down there in Columbus for the Buckeyes, yeah, Ohio State on defense does not have to be dominant. And yes, Ohio State, especially from the secondary linebacker in front four position, is always going to be up there recruiting four or five-star recruits. Is this the same situation now that we're going to be facing with Ohio State? Are they entering Oklahoma-type territory? Under Lincoln Riley, remember when Lincoln Riley had all of these explosive offenses and Baker Mayfield was winning Heisman trophies and Kyler Murray was winning Heisman trophies and Lincoln Riley was considered an offensive guru and an offensive genius? He, he still is. But what I'm saying was this was a guy where, you know, his mind and his coaching abilities and his coaching acumen caught the eye of Jerry Jones and other NFL uh, pr- uh, franchises to the point where, you know, Lincoln Riley, if he was going to be leaving Oklahoma, it would be to the NFL and bringing his offensive mind and his offensive genius and his offensive concepts to the NFL. And it was Lincoln Riley, Lincoln Riley, Youngblood, Lincoln Riley, this, that, and the other. 
The offense was always there, but it was always a matter of Oklahoma would lose these games where they weren't supposed to be losing these games. Why? It wasn't because of the offense. That was taken care of. It was the defense that was killing them. It was the defense why Lincoln Riley was 1-3 in bowl games. It was the defense why Lincoln Riley only made it to the college football playoff once. That was the kryptonite for the success, overall success, championship winning success for the Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma Sooners. It wasn't the offense, it was the defense. Now look, one year of bad defense for Ryan Day is not a, a situation where it's going to be a consistent problem like it was for Oklahoma over a multitude of years. But it'll be interesting to see, again, with a new defensive coordinator. And we're speaking about last season, after that game against Oregon, in which the uh, Buckeyes lost at home against a Pac-12 team that led to Day making the change at the defensive coordinator position. Now he's bringing in someone new. Is this going to be a problem for the defense for Ohio State? Is this going to be the same type of problem for Ohio State? in terms of winning championships that it has been for Oklahoma over the past couple of seasons. We will uh, we will see. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad that you could be with us. The best game of the season when just putting the finishing touches on speaking about uh, Ohio State is the game the first weekend, or not, not week zero, but week one of the college football season the opening game of their season against uh, Ohio, against Notre Dame. Notre Dame coming off the loss to Oklahoma State in the Fiesta Bowl, finishing the season at 11-2, as you should know, made the biggest coaching hire in the past few years when you're speaking about not just Marcus Freeman, 36-year-old Marcus Freeman being named the head coach at a historical uh, program like Notre Dame, but the age, the lack of experience, and the skin tone, and the skin color, and his race all of those things play a part in, man, shall we say, hmm, maybe a couple of notches below historic in terms of the hiring of uh, Freeman. But of course, everything, when you're speaking about, you know, will this move work and, 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 and everything is going to be leading to how successful this team is going to be. We already had the wow. I can't believe Notre Dame hired a black man as their head coach of the football team with Tyrone Willingham. And he started off great. But after after a little bit, didn't quite cut the mustard, if I can use that cliche. They went ahead and hired Charlie Weiss. Then Tyrone went to Washington and thought that he was going to turn that program around. They went 0-1 for the season, and that was the last we heard of uh, Tyrone Willingham's head coaching career. But this is a situation where Tyrone Willingham, great guy. Tyrone Willingham, very disciplined. Tyrone Willingham bringing discipline after a couple of scandals rocked Notre Dame and bringing in the type of players that Notre Dame, as far as student athletes are concerned, would be proud of. Except for the fact when he was fired, the AD athletic director for Notre Dame said, hey, you know what? On Monday through, uh, Sunday through Friday, Tyrone Willingham was great. He was awesome. He was fantastic. We don't have any type of problem at all with Willingham. We thought that he was fantastic Sunday through Friday. The problem was on Saturday. 
didn't really uh, meet our expectations. So despite the graduation rate and despite all the things that he's done for the program and the student athletes and the GPA and all that kind of stuff, again, great, fabulous, wonderful. If you don't win, if you don't win enough, if you don't meet expectations, you are gone. And that's the same thing that's going to be facing Marcus Freeman. And of course that faces all coaches when you're speaking about big-time athletic programs. That, uh, yeah, it really doesn't matter what you do between Sunday and Friday. It's what you do on Saturday that counts. And depending upon what you do on Saturday, you could damn near do almost anything Monday through uh, Sunday through Friday. And we'll see what we can do to uh, cover up for you. Just see LSU for those type of examples. Just see the University of Florida when Urban Meyer was their coach. Oh, I'm sorry. Not just at the University of Florida, but also at Ohio State when Urban Meyer was the coach there. So all of that is just to say that, you know, when we when we speak about Notre Dame and we speak about Wake Up the, Ex, uh, the Echoes and we speak about Era Parsegian and Nuke Rotney and the Four Horsemen and Joe Thiesman and all of the, and, and Rudy and all of these, um, you know, wonderful wonderful uh, uh, players and traditions and those type of things into the university, which makes Notre Dame the university that it is, especially when we're speaking about the uh, football program. It's a situation where, hey, man, win, you got to win, you got to win, you got to win, you got to win. So Freeman, hey, he's returning a strong offensive line. He's got the best tight end in Michael Meyer in football. You've got uh, a, a... Edge rusher in Isaac Falski, who's projected to be one of the first defensive players taken in next year's draft. You have an All-American safety from uh, Northwestern who's going to be transferring, Brandon Joseph. All of those things point to uh, a situation where this should be a successful season for Freeman and Notre Dame. But then again, let's go ahead and explain and talk about and define what's your definition of of a successful season because you take a look at the difficult schedule that Notre Dame has to play and you're speaking about them playing against Clemson and Ohio State as I mentioned before BYU, USC, the new look, new improved Lincoln Riley led USC Trojans is 11-2 and making a bowl game going to cut it? It should but after all this is Notre Dame we're speaking about the type of long term success that Freeman is doing on the recruiting trail when he's getting into homes and he's getting opportunities and he's landing prospects that Notre Dame normally didn't get? How much is that going to weigh into the situation where we're going to have to be a little bit patient for a guy who hasn't had any type of head coaching experience and he's taking over a program like Notre Dame? And how many losses are they going to be able to sustain? Now, look, it's his first season Unless they go completely off the the rails in terms of a program, which I'm not anticipating at all. But this season is going to be a season where we're going to be starting that build. So this is not a make or break. This is not a time to see what type of coach, um, putting it in the strong definition, putting it in ink, putting it in cement, putting it in concrete in terms of what type of coach Marcus Freeman is going to be. He should have at the very least five years to turn the program around into it being at the same level that Brian Kelly had it. 
But this is a situation where it's going to be interesting to see the direction that Notre Dame is going to be going, the trajectory of where Notre Dame is going to be going as a football program. And really, what does that mean for the football program moving forward when we're speaking about now the way the new age, the new day of college football? When we're speaking about now having super conferences and the last big chip to play in terms of the Big Ten, ACC, Big 12, SEC struggle in terms of either, either, even striving or surviving or dying, where does Notre Dame play in all of this? When everything is all said and done, two, three, four, five years from now, what, what's Notre Dame going to be doing? Are they going to be independent? Are they going to be finally joining a conference like the Big Ten? Because by that time, if we're speaking about the football season of 2027, there's only going to be two conferences, which would be the Big Ten and the SEC. Is this a situation where for the short term, that Notre Dame is going to be joining a conference? All of this stuff we don't know, and all of this stuff is going to be predicated on the success of Notre Dame football with the hiring of Marcus Freeman. I think it gives it the cachet, and I think it makes Notre Dame so much more interesting moving into the season because of the hire of Marcus Freeman, because Notre Dame hiring a black man as his head coach, and this young, handsome, family man, high-valued person in Marcus Freeman. When we have such a problem in college football with the hiring practices and the fact that uh, black coaches who are qualified can't get real opportunities to uh, get jobs. When you're speaking about Marcus Freeman here and the opportunity that he has at the University of Notre Dame being that head football coach for the longevity and the struggle and the fight for black coaches to get their equal opportunity to become coaches in college. Not it. I'm not speaking about that levels at Notre Dame or maybe or, or levels of uh, Georgia or at Alabama or such, or at Texas or such. I'm not saying that all of those positions have to be filled by black men. Of course, you put in the best candidate available if he happens to be black, if he happens to be gay, if he happens to be a Muslim, if he happens to be Asian, if he has to be Mexican, if he happens to be, um, you know, whatever, then that person should have the job. But we are speaking about college football. We are speaking about communities in college football, in regions where... That uh, sentiment is not uh, fully educatedly respected. So uh, we'll see. Because I don't care if you're speaking about Columbus, Ohio. I don't care if you're speaking about Mississippi. I don't care if you're speaking about Oklahoma. I don't care if you're speaking about Northern Ohio. I don't care if you're speaking about Western Pennsylvania. I don't care if you're speaking about New Mexico. I don't care if you're speaking about down in Florida. Northern Florida, that is. If you can coach and you can have ultimate success and you can have a football program that's elite. They won't give a flying fuck who you are. They might hold their nose while they're doing it. But if, as long as they can win, as long as they can be successful, as long as they can have pride in their school winning football games down there in Austin, down there in Norman, down there in Tuscaloosa, down there in um, Auburn, Alabama, down in Clemson, South Carolina, up there in Columbus, Ohio, up there in Happy Valley, it doesn't matter. Or at least it'll mitigate a lot in terms of your race, your creed, your religion, your gender. So 
giving it up, hoping for Marcus Freeman. Never really, never, never had really been a huge Notre Dame fan, but um, in the overall, and the overall importance and impact that uh, Marcus Freeman can have, I'm, uh, I'm rooting for him because you know, hey, you know what? It opens up so many doors. The success of of black folks, not just in terms of what's happening uh, in college football or athletics and such, pro, amateur, whatever. But it it, is always a conduit to something else in terms of other uh, minorities and other folks who have been discriminated and uh, prejudged in uh, faith bigotry and such. It opens up the doors for them. I don't know if the situation where if it's, well, shit, if a black man can do it, then hell, we can hire a Jew or we can hire an Asian or we can hire a woman or we can hire a gay or we can hire a Muslim. I don't don't know if that's the main reason why, but it's always been a situation where when the community, my community, when the black community has success uh, in other ventures, whether we're speaking about athletics, whether we're speaking about other uh, areas of the civil, uh, of the society, it always then opens up doors for other people who are minority, whether it be women, whether it be Hispanics, whether it be Asians. As I mentioned before, the whole potpourri of uh, diversity that we have in this country, it always opens up opportunities for them. The Native Americans are still waiting, but, uh, you know, one thing at a time here. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. So here was a little bit of a surprise for me. And, and look, I'm still learning about the 2022 college football season. So I've, I've really just started my learning and preparing myself to get to know these teams and what players, mainly when you're speaking about college, I mean, for me, more college basketball than pro football, or excuse me, college football. But I, I just like to see the upcoming NFL uh, prospects when it comes to these teams, when I'm taking a look at some of the elite teams in college football, I'm already taking a look at the mock draft for the 2023 NFL draft and seeing who's going to be doing what and who's supposed to be projected where. So when I start speaking about, when I start talking about, when I start going over and when I start learning and educating myself about these uh, programs in college football, vying for conference championships, vying for the college football playoffs, the teams that are supposed to be the uh, favorites to win the college football championship, competing for the college football championship. I like to, you know, it, it enhances my, it, it enhances my uh, thirst for knowledge amongst those teams. So, you know, when I was taking a look, when I first started doing this stuff, and I took a look and I saw Georgia. Wait a minute, and I, Georgia's number four? Georgia's number five? How does a team that won the national championship last year, the first since that Coon Herschel Walker was the star for that team back in the Vince Dooley days in the early 80s, I think 79, 80, somewhere around there. But how how does a team coming off winning a national championship that has been building a program like Kirby Smart's been building with that team over the last four or five years, the, the, the recruiting classes that they've been bringing in, which has rivaled the Ohio States and the Alabamas of the world. How in the world are they ranked fourth or fifth? I saw one publication, I saw on, I saw one online 
preseason ranking that had them somewhere around 6th or 7th. I was like, what's going on with that? Well, they have to replace a lot of talent on defense, as you well know. Because my first thought was, well, they've got Stetson Bennett coming back, and are, are we still playing the you-can't-win-a-championship-with-Stetson-Bennett game? Now, look, I understand that the main reason why Georgia won themselves the championship last year was because of the defense. I get that. I understand that. But even if you dismiss the importance of Stetson Bennett in terms of, well, he was just a guy. He, he, was, he was Brad Johnson when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won their Super Bowl. He was Trent Dilfer when the Baltimore Ravens won their Super Bowl. Even, even, if, even, if, you want to, even if you want to go that route. I mean, we, we still have a situation where Stetson Bennett is coming back at the starting quarterback, and after a year under his belt, and now the fact that uh, any competition that he had, might have at that, at that position, the quarterback position, all the former four- and five-star uh, recruits at the quarterback position have now transferred. So this is, without question, Stetson Bennett's job. We're not going to have to be speaking about in a Georgia win that was ugly, maybe 17-14, where Stetson Bennett wasn't looking Heisman Trophy candidate, candidate-ish. This is not going to be a situation where, hey, well, you know, in the wings, they have this five-star recruit that's supposed to be the bees all, the knees all. When is he going to be, you know, making that, uh, when is he going to be making that change? I mean, it's the, the conversation about can Georgia win a championship with Stetson Bennett at quarterback, I mean, that's kind of like a mute conversation right now because even if you want to have that conversation because you believe that Stetson Bennett was the guy that wrote the coattails of a historically great defense to a championship, even if you want to believe that narrative, it really doesn't matter because they don't have anybody in the wings waiting to replace Stetson Bennett. As I mentioned before, despite all of the great recruiting classes that Georgia has had over the last three or four years, none of them have included, and that's on the roster right now, a five-star, you know, top five pocket uh, pocket quarterback. So this is Stetson Bennett's team on offense, whether you like him or not. Whatever you think of him as a quarterback leading a team to a championship, his ability to do that, he's your starting quarterback. And as we saw uh, last uh, season, Kirby Smart is pretty loyal to Stetson Bennett. So if he goes off and he goes out, in a game, and he's average. Please, there is no, there's, there's no need to have the chatter. Uh, well, is there anybody that can replace Stetson Bennett? What we're going to be doing about Stetson Bennett? What happens when Stetson Bennett plays? Uh, what happens when Stetson Bennett plays Kentucky with their quarterback? What happens when uh, Stetson Bennett and Georgia play Alabama in the SEC championship game against Bryce Young? There's, there's no need to have this conversation about. Oh my goodness, is there anybody? In case of emergency, break glass that's going to come in and save the day for Georgia at the quarterback position. Stop it. That conversation is mute. Stetson Bennett is the quarterback. So that was my first thought when I was thinking about why is Georgia like like being so disrespected that way? Then, of course, I went a little bit deeper and I said, ah, yes, of course. A lot of their players that they had on defense that a lot of the folks were pointing to in terms of that was the reason why the Bulldogs won themselves the championship. They're gone. Trayvon Walker was the number one draft pick by Jacksonville this past draft. Multiple other defensive players were drafted in the first round. 
when you're speaking about players like Jordan Davis and Nicobe Dean and Quay Walker. Those guys are coming through the door, folks, unless they're going to be on the sidelines cheering them on. And then you also have the situation where defensive coordinator Dan Lemming, or Dan Lennings, excuse me, is now the head coach at Oregon. But, yeah, we can sit there and we can speak about, man, defense last season for Georgia gave up an average of 270 yards, 10 points per game, the number one defense in the country when it came to uh, scoring allowed red zone defense historical it was great it was awesome it was unbelievable it was fantastic all of those things are true but i think on offense you have to put a little bit more faith for those who don't have it because you got to have faith 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 oh you got to have faith and step to bennett i can't believe i just saying george michael good lord what is wrong with me but uh you, you gotta you gotta put your trust in Stetson bennett being able to handle more of the responsibilities for the team's overall success. I mean, last season, he completed 65% of his passes for 2,800 yards, 29 touchdowns, 7 picks. And, and I think when you're speaking about a coach like Kirby Smart, and you're speaking about the style of offense that he wants to play, I think he's, I think he's in the stages of a young Nick Saban. Remember when Nick Saban, the first... Uh, I don't know if you want to call it dynasty or the first domination of Alabama. And even when Saban was at LSU, he, he was never known. The first couple of times before he got to and, and such, Saban was never known as a guy who was, you know, this, this, this Mike Leach wannabe in terms of opening up the offense, scoring a bunch of points. Nick Saban was much more comfortable well, win's a win, but Saban was probably much more comfortable winning a football game 14 to 10, 21 17, uh, you know, 24 13, with the defense doing their thing, than he was putting up a whole bunch of numbers. When you speak about the Greg McElroy's of the world, and you speak about uh, the type of, uh, of, of quarterbacks that he had in the first incarnation of dominance as head coach of Alabama. It wasn't until the rules started to change a little bit, and then that's when the Mac Joneses and the Bryce Youngs, and all of a sudden now the stars of the Alabama football team were the quarterbacks and the uh, and the um, unit that was being more responsible for Alabama winning football games and conference championships and championships, national championships in general, turned to the offense. So I think right now, Kirby Smart, head coach of Georgia, I think he's in the early stages of Nick Saban in terms of, look, man, I don't need a dynamic quarterback to uh, win a championship. I need a competent one. I need a good game manager, maybe a little bit more than a game manager. But I don't need an NFL first-round draft pick to win a championship. I don't need a Heisman Trophy winner or candidate at quarterback to win a championship. Proof is in the pudding. Check last season. And if you check a lot of my success since I really started rolling at the coach of Georgia, you'll see that, uh, you know, having a Bryce Young, having a C.J. Stroud, having a Justin Fields, having a Baker Mayfield, having a Kyler Murray, really don't need it. For the optimum of success. Would I like a Quinn Ewers? You betcha. Would I like an Arch Manning? Oh, you betcha. Would I like a Malachi Nelson? Oh, you betcha. But I don't need it. 
and I'm perfectly content and happy with the success that I had to show you that I can win a championship with defense. So I don't need, so so, so y'all can chill with the, oh my goodness, Stetson Bennett is a, uh, is not a Heisman Trophy candidate. He's not a five-star recruit. Oh my goodness gracious. He's not 6'4", 230 with a 4'5", 40 in a, you know, in a, in, a, in a howitzer for an arm. I don't need that. Don't need that to win a championship. How much of the fact that Bennett is not that and the fact that Georgia, really at the running back position under Kirby Smart, has been running back by committee, how much is that um, playing into the preseason prognostications about Georgia um, not being the top-tier team or not being the number one team in the country so interesting game to open their season against uh, Oregon the return of former defensive coordinator Dan uh, Lemming it's going to be interesting it's going to be interesting to see what this new look Georgia team now again on defense they might not be historic but we're speaking about Georgia another program that doesn't rebuild they reload so overall competing for a championship in the SEC East, that's not nearly as competitive as the SEC West. Yes, Tennessee has made some of the good deals. Florida should be a lot better. But but yet and still, when you're speaking about the chances of Georgia repeating, not just as the SEC Eastern Conference champion, but also making it and winning the national championship, I, I think that they're, uh, they're right there. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Before I get out of here, what what are we excuse me, what are we gonna make of USC? University of Southern California, for those who don't know. Man, what 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 is gonna be their realistic expectations when you're speaking about USC and Lincoln Riley for this season? What are we talking about here? Program hired O'Reilly, their new head coach. Probably if you're speaking about the most significant news USC has made regarding the impact of the team that's going to be on the field. What we're going to have to go back 2022. So what we're looking at maybe 14, 15 years, probably somewhere around 2007 when we're speaking about a move that made this big of an impact, the hiring of uh, Riley signing him to a contract for around $110 million, USC buying both of his homes in Norman for around $500,000 over the asking price, giving him a $1 million bonus, buying a $6 million home in Los Angeles for him and his family, the unlimited use for Riley to use the private jet 24-7 for his family. Whether these things have been debuted or debunked in terms of, well, you know, the buying of the house in Norman or the buying of the house in LA. Doesn't matter. It's out there as news. And the lemmings that we have as people for this country, that's what they're going to see. They're not going to hear the alternative facts. They're going to see this and they're going to keep moving with, damn, USC paid all of that for a Lincoln Riley, huh? You start putting in those type of, uh, you, you, you start, you know, putting that news out there in terms of his contract, in terms of everything that uh, the program did for Riley, for him to leave a prestigious program like Oklahoma and go to USC, when we're speaking about all shucks, Lincoln Riley going to L.A. That's going to make some news. And when you take a look at the success that Lincoln Riley has had, 
and the way that he left Oklahoma, it's going to be some news. And there's going to be some pressures for Lincoln Riley right off the bat. It's not going to be a grace period, I don't believe. There'll be there'll be a little bit of a grace period. But um, last season, the Trojans were 4-8. and eight. Lincoln Riley better not go 4-8 and eight this season. Not saying they're going to fire him or anything like that. But it's going to be a situation where even in L.A., we're not talking about Norman, Oklahoma. We're not talking about Tuscaloosa. We're not talking about Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're not talking about Austin, Texas. We're not talking about Columbus, Ohio. We're not talking about Clemson, South Carolina. We are speaking about L.A. where the Lakers rule. Okay, we're not. We're speaking about USC. We're speaking about Los Angeles, California. Last time I checked, L.A. wasn't a quote-unquote college town. You got the Dodgers, you got the Lakers, you got the Clippers. Okay, but you know what I'm saying. So the, the pressure for Lincoln Riley, while great, is not going to be near the level if he was coaching at a University of Texas or a University of uh, Notre Dame or, or, or an LSU or, a, or an Alabama or a Clemson or an Ohio State, one of those type of programs where you have the whole community and sometimes the entire region identifying themselves with the success and the failures, the up and downs of the everyday of their football program. USC is not going to have that problem. But yet and still, everything that USC did to go out and get this man He's going to be facing some problems. He's going to be facing some issues and facing some pressures, especially when you're speaking about um, probably the most prestigious college football program west of the Mississippi. As I mentioned before, USC went four and eight last season. Last four seasons, they've been twenty-two and twenty-one. It's going to be interesting to see the makeup. And how USC plays when you're speaking about the majority of the team that's going to be asked to turn this program around is coming from the transfer portal. Now, Riley has done quite well in some of the four and five stars that he recruited when he was at Oklahoma who committed to Oklahoma because of Lincoln Riley. Then when Riley went to USC, they decommitted and followed him out to La La Land. But, you know, you're speaking to someone like a Malachi Nelson who along with Arch Manning is supposed to be one of the jewels and the gems of the 2023 uh, um, recruiting class you know Malachi Nelson from LA signed with Oklahoma because of Lincoln Riley when Riley went to USC Nelson decommitted followed him to uh, USC Caleb Williams Gonzaga High School out here or back there my hometown of the DMV district um, the district of Columbia five star recruit who went out to Oklahoma he now is at uh, USC and is vying to be the starting quarterback for uh, the Trojans this season after being uh, the starting quarterback midway through the season replacing Spencer Rattler for Oklahoma and um, doing such great things I guess you can almost say that uh, Williams is one of the dark horses to uh, be competing for winning the Heisman Trophy Jordan Addison formerly of uh, Pittsburgh after uh, their quarterback got drafted by the Steelers, Kenny forgot his last name. He decided that he was going to uh, go somewhere else. And he joined Riley out there in Southern California. So the, the pressure is going to be on. Again, we're going to have to kind of define what are going to be the expectations of this team. If you're a fan of USC, are you going to be happy with, say, 
eight and four, seven and five. You should be elated with eleven and two. Where do you rank them in the preseason? Most prognosticators have them anywhere between like eight or nine in the top ten, all the way out to somewhere like in the uh, in the twenties. So we're we're speaking about now. What what are going to be your realistic expectations when you're speaking about USC? They should be fun to watch. It'll be interesting to watch, but, uh, you know, right off the bat, you're speaking about a guy in Lincoln Riley, his five season at OSU, excuse me, at uh, Oklahoma from 2017 to uh, 2021, 55 and 10 overall, 37 and 7 in Big 12 conference play. Guy won the Big 12 conference three times, finished second once. Speaking about immediate success at Oklahoma in 2017, his first year as the head coach, Oklahoma finished third. In the final rankings, 2018, they finished 4th, 6th in 2019, 6th in 2020, and then 10th in 2021. So the success is there. Some of the things, my man Eric G, does sports talk show out there with the coach Pat Jones out there at the Sports Animal in Tulsa, has said many times, he also does the fabulous uh, podcast for Heartland Radio, always listen to him to get my uh, fix on what's happening with the Big 12 but, um, you know, he's been around the Oklahoma program, the Lincoln-Riley-Oklahoma program, and he has stated many times that for you guys who think that Lincoln-Riley is going to be the second coming of Nick Saban in terms of the success that he's going to have now that he's with a blue-blood program like USC and all the recruiting avenues that are going to be opened up to him and the atmosphere and all this type of stuff, and he's going to bring back USC to the levels of Pete Carroll when they had that thing rolling at the beginning part of the 21st century. You better slow your roll, Jackson Brown. Slow it up. Because me following this guy and following the Oklahoma program while Lincoln Riley with the coach, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, all that stuff about wonderful offenses and first-round draft picks when you're speaking about Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray not only being drafted number one, but winning the Heisman Trophy when you're speaking about Marquise Brown, when you're speaking about D.D. Lamb and Kenneth Murray all being drafted in the first round and the skill positions and all these wonderful things which you are going to assume is going to translate from Norman now to L.A. You guys are going to be thinking that, oh my goodness, USC is going to be so explosive and so wonderful and so fantastic because Lincoln Riley is such a great head coach. You better put the brakes on that because my man Eric G said as an offensive guru, as an offensive coordinator, as an offensive play caller, as an offensive designer, yes, without question, Lincoln Riley deserves all the compliments and the monikers of great and wonderful and fabulous that's, uh, that's been lauded on him. Yes, but we're speaking about only one side of the ball. And as a head coach... You're responsible for the offense, the defense, the special teams, amongst other things. And if you take the other parts of what it takes to be a head coach, Lincoln Riley, in some cases, have not only has not only been average, not only has he been below average, been in a multitude of situations, he's been an abject failure. If you take a look at the defense and you take a look at other things and you take a look at games every single year that Oklahoma seemed to lose where it was like, how in the world did Oklahoma lose to this team? So it'll be interesting to see what type of coach that you're getting 
with Lincoln Riley, what are going to be the expectations? And man, we haven't even talked about realignment. We haven't even talked about any of that stuff that's currently now the foundation is being built. The ideas are being set. The groundwork is being laid when you're speaking about the shifting, the changing of college football concerning some of these conferences. We haven't even spoken about what the future of the Big 12, what's going to be happening with the Pac-12, what's going to be happening with the ACC, what's going to be going on. We spoke a little bit about it with Notre Dame, but in terms of the way football is going to be looking down the road, we have a lot of time to get into that, and of course I'll be getting into that. Today, I just wanted to take a look at some of the teams that are going to be uh, stars of the college football world and the college football season and just go over that. So, yeah, man, I mean, college football is um, is right around the corner. It's on the horizon, if I can use all those cliches. Can't wait for it to happen. Just get through August. As I mentioned before, get those honeydew chores done. Hang around with them kids. Take that vacation. Let the parents know that you love them. Do all those type things. Go out and uh, do your thing and uh, get ready. Because college football is coming. It'll be here quicker than you'll know. Last segment of the podcast, last segment of the program, welcome back to Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World and Sports. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World and Sports. So, doggone glad that you could be with us. Good morning. Good abend. My name is Wendell Wallace. This is Wendell's World and Sports. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum. Konnichiwa. Namaste. Special dedication. Those listening all over the globe. Whether you're listening here in America, whether you're listening in Canada, Australia, South Africa, Anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the motherland, thank you so doggone much for listening. Always remember again, if you like what you hear, no, 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 no pressure, but it would really mean a lot if you like what you hear to follow, to subscribe, to download, to rate, to uh, do all those type of things. The most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. I'm just saying, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, I just want to get into some NBA news and some summer league. By the way, uh, for the Armando Vasquez's out there who I'm right now educating about being a boxing fan, I'm going to have a lot more on Ryan Garcia's uh, impressive performance out in L.A. this uh, past Saturday. And uh, be speaking about that on my YouTube episode of what I'm going to be putting down. Speak about uh, where does 
where does Mr. Garcia go for go uh, go from now? And uh, man, you, you know, you're speaking about the um, you're speaking about the the state of, of boxing. One thing that I've and I'll, I'll get to the NBA in just a sec, quick second. This is what I'm going to be really getting into on my uh, on my boxing talk in the last segment of the YouTube episode that we're going to be doing, probably coming out on uh, either Wednesday night or Thursday, no later than Thursday. But the one thing that I'm going to be mentioning is the fact that w- one of the things that I think boxing suffers from, which is really not their fault, boxing has a lot of self-inflicted wounds on why it's not the same sport in terms of the popularity and notoriety of the public that it was back in the day. But uh, what, what, one thing that um, one thing that I think boxing suffers from in terms of the ignorance of those who want to sit there and talk about how lost boxing is and how it's uh, been decreased and, and all those type of things is the fact that they always point to the, yeah, back in the 80s or, yeah, back in the 90s. Or, yeah, back when Ali was fighting, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when, you know, you're speaking about the importance of boxing. If you go back, it's it's historical. Absolutely historical. When you speak about some of the uh, some of the boxers, historical presence, not just for the sport, but just in society in general. When you're speaking about the impact of such historical figures as a Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, when you're speaking about uh, Muhammad Ali, when you're speaking about Joe Lewis, when you're speaking about all of these great uh, fighters, when you're speaking about Sugar Ray Robinson, when you're speaking about the impact that these guys have had on their communities, these guys have had on their countries, it's, it's unbelievable. Julio Cesar Chavez, when you're speaking about all of these great fighters, you know, people always point to that and see that's one of the reasons why boxing is dead right now. When they speak about... Boxing, for some reason, back in the day, always having this dearth of talent or always having this overflowing of talent to where it seemed like every other weekend that you were having some historically great, unbelievable fight. And and that's not just that's not the case. Now, is there a lack of overall talent in in the sport of boxing right now? If you're speaking about welterweight, middleweight, junior middleweight, heavyweight, cruiserweight, lightweight, featherweight, light heavyweight, possibly, maybe. But boxing has never been a sport where you just have this unbelievable, uh, uh, this unbelievable sides of talent to where you know you have great, legendary, awesome fighters um, during their era. At the very most, history lesson, y'all. Mr. Wallace is teaching. Sit down and shut up. At the very most, you would have maybe four or five at the time. Really great fighters doing their thing? Maybe everybody talked about the 80s where it's kind of like, oh man, the 80s were so great when you had Hagler and you had Hearns and you had Duran and you, you had Sugar Ray Leonard and oh my goodness gracious and this, that and the other. Unlike today where you don't have nobody. I can't identify with anybody. I don't know anybody. Let's hold on for a second. Let Mr. Wallace do his teaching so you can do some learning and educating. All right? Man, I'm saving, should be saving all this for my uh, YouTube episode. I'll bring this out on that also. If you remember back in the 80s, when, oh my goodness gracious, I lament on how it was so wonderful with these wonderful fighters. Does anybody remember that Sugar Ray Leonard retired for, I believe, three and a half years after his fight with Thomas Hearns because of a detached retina? Do Does anybody remember that? Roberto Duran, do you remember... 
the bullshit that Roberto Duran had to go through and how he was basically a pariah in boxing and was persona non grata after his no mas in 82 or 83, one of those years against Sugar Ray and the fight in um, the fight in New Orleans. Does anybody remember that? Does anybody know that marvelous Marvin Hagler, does anybody know the story why Marvin Hagler changed his name legally? Changed his name to Marvelous Marvin Hagler? It's because Marvelous Marvin Hagler, being just Marvin Hagler, wasn't getting any publicity. He wasn't getting in the shine. He wasn't getting any of the stardom. Nobody really knew who he was. So the reason why he had to change his name to Marvelous Marvin Hagler was to have something where people could pay more attention to him. So when he was fighting Alex Minter and he was fighting John Mugabe and stuff, no one knew who he was. It wasn't until Sugar Ray Leonard announced his comeback in 87 and said that he was going to take on Marvelous Marvin Hagler. That when the Q rating and that's when the attention arose exponentially to Marvin Hagler. But during the early 80s, during the mid 80s, no one knew who Marvin Hagler was for the most part unless you were a big fan of boxing. Yeah, he had that brutality. Yeah, he had that three-round uh, battle or that three-round fight with Thomas Hearns, which was le- legendary, which began to put him on the map. But before that, the fight with him and Roberto Duran, no one gave a damn about that fight. So my whole point in this matter is, you have a lot of really good fighters in boxing right now, but right now they're young. Right now, most of them are Mexican, and right now, most of them are still trying to build their deal. Ryan Garcia fits in all of that. Ryan Garcia could be the leader. When you're speaking about Javante Davis, and you're speaking about uh, uh, you're speaking about Tank Davis, and you're speaking about Timo Field Lopez, and all these guys, where they could be the new Sugar Ray and Roberto Duran and Marvel and, and, and Marvin Hangler and such, and have all these great fights and all this all this you know all all of these things happy happen for them, and not have the stops and starts and other things that plagued boxing in the 1980s. In the 1980s, you had Mike Tyson and who else? And after Mike Tyson went to jail for raping a woman, raping a woman, Desiree Washington, which he did, so he went to prison for that, there was no one to take this place. At that time, Evander Holyfield was a cruiserweight. At that time, Buster Douglas was just a buster. Evander, Hol- Evander Holyfield the heavyweight champion of the world at that time was nothing more than a pumped-up heavyweight. He didn't have the same stature that we think of when we think about these great legendary boxers like Larry Holmes and Ali and Marciano and and, and, and those type of guys and Sonny Liston and those type of guys. So it, it always kind of makes me laugh and makes me chuckle when people talk about how down in the doldrums Boxing is right now because of the dearth of talent. Boxing is boxing is fine. You just have to pay attention to it. You just have to pay attention to it and continue to uh, listen to um, Wendell's World of Sports because I'll uh, I'll actually talk about it now because of the appetite for boxing amongst the public is not you know super great. I'm not going to be going into you know deep dive stuff. But come on, man, when Canelo Canelo Alvarez fights, that's a happening. When Tyson Fury fights, that's a happening. When Ryan Garcia fights, that's a happening. When Timofeo Lopez fights, that's a happening. When Vasily Lomachenko fights, it's a happening. 
And those names that I just compared, those guys are great, 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 great fighters. They're great fighters. Future Hall of Fame fighters. Or at least on the road to. There's no lack of talent in boxing right now. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe that nonsense. Armando, do you understand what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, real quick. The uh, NBA season is now over. Love of my life as far as sports is concerned. If you want to compare the NBA to someone who I'm madly in love with superficially, if you're speaking about Halley, if you're speaking about Bellucci, if you're speaking about Selma Hayek, if you're speaking about uh, who else is out there, if you're speaking about uh, Vivica Fox from, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, when you're speaking about Layla Roshan from about 15 years ago, I haven't heard hide nor hair of them, so I don't know how, I don't know what they look, how they look or what they're doing. But, uh, you know, my wifey, the love of my life, all those type of things, uh, they're, they're gone. They're out, they're out taking a vacation. So uh, the last remnants of this NBA past season is over. Congratulations to the Portland Trailblazers. They are your 2022 Las Vegas Summer League champions. Woohoo! Boy, I know Dane right now is just... When, when is the parade for that going to be happening out there in Portland? When are y'all going to move all the homeless people off the streets so y'all can go ahead and have this uh, parade for these guys? When is the... Uh, are you guys going to unveil the rings? Oh, they already got their rings. Also, they're, they're not waiting for the first game of the season for the... Portland Trailblazers Summer League team to uh, come back from the G League or China or wherever else they're playing over in Europe to earn a paycheck. They're not going to be bringing them back for ring night, the opening night of the season. So I thought there was going to be a ring night in Golden State for them winning the NBA championship. There's not going to be one similar to uh, with the Portland with the Portland Trailblazers for them winning the Summer League championship. Okay, all right. Beat the New York Knicks, 85. 77. Some of the players that I want to speak about very quickly, who had some uh, great significance, and you're speaking about Paolo Bencaro uh, of the Orlando Magic, the number one player in the NBA draft, great body at 6'10", somewhere around 240 pounds, and the man is 19 years old, or I'm sorry, he's not even a man, a young lad, the teenager is still 19 years old, had confident shooting range, somewhere around 20 feet, the ability to play the wing, I think we're speaking about Ben Caro and all of these guys that were uh, drafted top three or four and um, we're going to be kind of projecting what they'll be when they really hit their stride and hopefully the team that drafted them when they are in serious position to start really contending for championships by that time with Ben Caro when he's about 23 24 years old you're going to be speaking about a guy who should by that time, have confident shooting range from the three-point line. A little shaky. I think his sweet shooting spot right now is about 20, 21 feet, but uh, as he grows into his game and matures and stuff, I'm thinking about three-point shooting should be there for him. The ability to play the the uh, wing going to grow into what I would like to say as a versatile three-position player when you're speaking about the ability for him to uh, play the small forward position, play the power forward p- position, and play a small ball five position. Really kind of a tweener, maybe, if you think about it, between the small forward and power forward. I think that, um, you know, s- similar to uh, an, an, Aaron, an Aaron Gordon type, I think that, uh, you know, his main position, what he's going to be making as far as all-star teams are concerned, if he's going to be making all NBA squads, 
I think it will be at the power forward position, but I think that uh, you can define him as just a forward, a guy who can play not only the power forward, but also the small forward position and do it very well. And also, again, because of his size, because of his versatility, because of uh, the way the game is changing right now, that uh, in certain situations he can spend some time at the uh, center position if the Orlando Magic want to go small, as I mentioned before, we're speaking about two or three years down the road. Overall size and strength, I think when you're speaking about Ben Carroll, that's going to be that's going to be his greatest advantage. His size and his strength. 6'10", 240. So you're, you're speaking about a guy in a couple of years that's going to be like 6'10", 260. That's going to be able to put the ball on the floor. That's going to be able to maneuver. That's going to be able to uh, be a playmaker as far as passing is concerned. So I think his size and overall strength, the versatility that's going to come with that to be able to post up, to be able to be efficient from 18 to 23 feet, I think that's going to be the greater strength of him on the offensive end rather than a guy who's going to uh, be able to take advantage of, quote, his run-jump athleticism. He doesn't have uber run-jump athleticism, quick twitch and all that type of stuff. Someone from uh, that size, that's like LeBron James-type nonsense, like alien type of uh, genetics. But uh, uh, as far as an offensive dynamo or juggernaut that Ben Carroll can become, not just only when we're speaking about scoring the basketball, but also setting up others and um, and uh, setting up others and rebounding, I think that's going to be coming from his overall size and strength, not his run-jump athleticism. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The one guy who I've mentioned before, when you're speaking about, I don't know what the ceiling is going to be. I have no idea. The guy who could be... I'm not going to say Giannis, but um, a guy who could, I, Chet Holmgren, let me get to him, 20 years old, 7 feet 1, weighs 195 pounds, 195 pounds, look, he's fluid, fundamentally sound big when you're speaking about what he can do on the perimeter, as far as a big man is concerned, someone of that height, I think that his uh, footwork fundamentals are, are, are fantastic i think his instincts for the game on the defensive end are, are great from what i've seen um in summer league this year can shoot with three-point range step back three plays a style of play style of play is similar to that of nikola Jokic when you're when you're speaking about what what he wants to do a guy who can work from the outside in Jokic can work from um, Jokic can work from inside and outside but, but Jokic can be that guy that can initiate the offense from the three-point range. Jokic can initiate the offense from the top of the key. Jokic can initiate the offense with his back to the basket, left block, right block, that type of thing. I think I think Holmgren is the guy that can, um, like Jokic, initiate the offense and be very effective with his overall feel for the game. From the from the high post, from the perimeter, but when you're speaking about 195, not so much from not so much from the block. So that's why I say that he had the similar style of play as uh, as Jokic. Moving forward, what what position is he going to thrive at? Center, power forward? I don't know. 
I had no idea. I took a look at some of the centers currently in the NBA that's going to be in the NBA when um, in the next two or three, four years, when you're going to be speaking about Holmgren, 23, 24, coming up on his first uh, contract. It's going to be going up against centers on a nightly basis. Now, look, Embiid, Jokic, I mean, Anthony Davis, I mean, those guys give anybody problems. So it's not like, oh, my goodness, if he can't guard Joel Embiid, he stinks. I'm not saying that. But, I mean, we're, we're speaking about centers like, or, or he's going to be going up against centers such as Embiid and Stephen Adams, and Anthony Davis, who, I'm sorry, he might be a power forward. He plays center. Jonas Valanciunas. Jokic, as I mentioned before, Nikola Vucevic out there in Chicago, DeAndre Ayton, Brooke Lopez, Mitchell Robinson, Robert Williams, Rashard Holmes. And I only mention this is because look at the size of these guys. Jalen Jalen uh, Duran, who was uh, drafted by the uh, Pistons, who in the NCAA tournament game when Memphis played Gonzaga, was overpowering uh, Holmgren. Got him into foul trouble. It's not so much, and I hear this all the time, about, well, size really doesn't make a difference and no big deal, this, that, and the other. Because if you're Memphis, do you really want to uh, abandon uh, John Morant doing this thing so you can uh, place Jonas Valanciunas in the post and keep feeding him the ball so he can work over Chet Holmgren? It's, It's not about that. It's about the situation that, look, man, Chen Holmgren is going to have to try to be able to keep somebody off of the offensive and defensive boards. The NBA, while not as rugged as it was in the 90s and such, it's still a physical game. So if you're speaking about going up against such a behemoth as Steven Adams and Jonas Valanciunas and such, or you're going up against the size of a DeAndre Ayton or the athleticism of a Robert Williams or a Rashad Holmes or a Mitchell Robinson, or you're going up against the size and the girth of a uh, Brooke Lopez, which I'm not saying these guys are monsters. They're not Shaquille O'Neal, but still, you're speaking about big, strong guys. So it's a situation where if Chet Holmgren is going to be playing at the age of 20, 21, 22, if he's going to be playing, say, for instance, 36 minutes a game, and of those 36 minutes, let's just say 24, 25 of those minutes, he's going to be guarding Valanchunas or uh, Adams or Vucevic, or Ayton, or Lopez, or Holmes. It's going to be a situation where, yeah, when you're going for an offensive rebound, give Holmgren a shot in the ribs. I mean, be physical with the guy. When you're speaking about Holmgren on pick and rolls, send him pick for Josh Giddy in rolling, under roll, give him a shot. You know, give him a little poke with the elbow to the ribs or to the gut. You know, when, when Holmgren goes to the basket and when you foul him, foul him hard. Not dirty, but foul him hard. Because NBA players, when, when games are over, especially when you're speaking about the big men, they, they still have battle scars to show you in terms of the uh, when, when folks say the NBA is no longer physical. I mean, you can take a look at Embiid. You can take a look at... Um, um, Vucevic, you can speak a look at Jokic, you can speak a look at those guys, Anthony Davis and such, coming after a game and say, really? The NBA isn't physical? Then what are all these scratches on my arms doing? What are all these bruises on my back and my around my, my uh, rib area? Where, where, where did they come from? How did they get those? So, 
it'll be a situation where, yeah, skill-wise and everything, Holmgren, no problem. But again, how is he going to hold up at only 195 pounds? And then I asked a question about Zion in terms of what is his ideal weight because we've never seen a behemoth of someone 6'6", 270 with the explosiveness and the athleticism of a Zion Williams. On the other end of the spectrum, what is the ultimate weight moving forward now in the next three, four, five, six, eight years for Chet Holmgren? What is going to be his prime time playing weight? If Chet Holmgren is going to be an All-NBA MVP type candidate who's going to be one of the main leaders of a team that could win a championship at seven feet one, what's going to be his ideal playing weight? If as of right now at 20, he weighs 195 pounds. Are we speaking about 240 by the time that he's 26? 250? 260? If if you're going to be asking Chet Holmgren to go into the weight room and drink protein shakes and, uh, you know, and, and, and start, um, start a, a workout regimen that's going to be reminiscent of him trying to uh, make the Mr. Olympia uh, uh, deal, is that going to be good for his game? How much weight, how much strength does Chet Holmgren need to put on if he's going to be playing center? And if he is going to be playing center, how much of a full-time center is he going to be playing? I think eventually, man, he's going to have to be playing some small forward. And I think that's going to be a situation where I don't know if, I don't know if the Oklahoma City Thunder are going to have to find someone like a P.J. Tucker, like an undersized power forward who could just play center and have Chet Holmgren because he's, Holmgren is marvelous when you speak about his rim protection coming from the weak side as a weak side defender. But I mean, Joel Embiid and those guys are going to eat him up as far as, I mean, Holmgren, is he going to block some shots? Yeah, he's going to block some shots. No doubt about it. He'll get his fair share of, of blocks, but he'll get his fair share of dunked on, dunked on twos. That's what I'm not worried about. I'm worried about the overall physicality of 82 games. If Holmgren plays, if Holmgren throughout his career in his prime from age 20 to 27, if he's going to average playing 74, 75 games, glass half full, everything fantastic, copacetic, wonderful, yoo-hoo! Holmgren playing 20, uh, 75 games. How much of a toll is that going to take on his effectiveness? If you're asking Ted Holmgren to be the guy that's going to be the anchor of your defense and be a guy who's going to be making all-star games on a regular basis and be a real impact player on the team that's going to be uh, winning and vying for championships. I don't know. I don't know. So it'll be interesting to see. Jabari Smith, the third player picked in the draft by the Houston Rockets. Many people thought that the Orlando Magic were going to take Smith. But uh, I think for Jabari Smith, the ability to play 3 and D, to be a 3 and D player, an elite 3 and D player were on display in summer league, but I'm not quite sure moving forward that he's the number one player for a team competing for a championship or even for a number two. And maybe for the Houston Rockets, they think that's fine because they want their number one and two guys to be um, Jalen Green and, um, and um, uh, oh my goodness, the point guard whose name escapes me right now. But So maybe Jabari Smith can fit into a, a, a more efficient, bigger Mikhail Bridges type role, which is the number three guy on the team that can win a championship. 
He's fundamentally sound on defense. Had a beautiful looking stroke on his jump shot. Kevin Porter Jr., point guard for Houston. Fundamentally sound, speaking about Jabari Smith on his defense and had the beautiful looking uh, jump shot. The only thing that kind of, um, the only thing that kind of concerned me from the few times I saw him in Summer League, his inability to consistently or even semi-consistently beat his man off the dribble and get to the rim. And we're speaking about Summer League talent. We're not even talking about NBA talent. So that, that that's the kind of thing. It, it missed a lot on his jump shots, especially at the beginning. Could care less. That stroke, he's going to be an elite shooter. Three-point shooter, he's going to be elite. And the defensive instincts and everything that he showed, the ability to um, not back down, the ability to block shots and to move his feet and such, a guy is going to be able to uh, make all NBA defensive teams, without question. An all-NBA defender multiple times and candidate for a defensive player of the year when he really starts rolling. No question. Size, lateral quickness, all there. It's just that his ability to create for himself, as of right now that I saw in the summer league, not there. Not there. And I don't, I don't know if he is going to get it. But if he just turns out to be um, a really, really awesome uh, defender and wing shooter, then uh, I think that the uh, Houston Rockets are going to be set because as of right now, they don't have anybody on that team that can play any defense as you're speaking about the uh, regular roster. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me just uh, let me just end with this, man. The Sacramento Kings. Now, the Sacramento Kings with Vivek Remedive is always a team where you're speaking about if they chose to go left, they should have gone right. What reason do you have for that? Because the Sacramento Kings went left. What I'm saying was this was a situation where it's like, look, man, they've had plenty of examples of them making the wrong decisions in, in so many things. Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic might go down as Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan-esque in terms of his ridicule and, and, and bewilderment 10, 15, 20 years from now when we look back at the careers of Luka and Marvin Bagley and the success of Sacramento and Dallas. But uh, that's Vivek, the hiring of Lale Divek to be the uh, general manager. Just the ridiculous moves that have been made. Uh, even the uh, trading of Therese Halliburton for Devonta Sabonis and others. That was roundly criticized. Maybe, again, the level of harshness and criticism. Maybe it was because they put the Sacramento Kings doing Sacramento things, you know, Sacramento King things. You know, if this was another franchise, if this was the San Antonio Spurs, if this was the Golden State Warriors, if this was a more established organization, then it would be a situation where, okay, let's see what the glass half full is to not criticize this move because it's the Sacramento Kings and the ineptitude that they've shown over the years, automatically the deal was panned. And we haven't even found out exactly how this deal is going to work out for both Indiana or Sacramento. So when the Sacramento Kings on draft night, decided that they would go with uh, Keegan Murray out of Iowa, and then the many people having them drafting uh, Jalen Murray, uh, Jaden Murray out of, uh, or uh, Javon Ivey, excuse me, uh, in the draft. Many people said, oh, there you go. That's the Kings being the Kings again. Yep, everybody knows you should have drafted Jaden Ivey, but there they go drafting uh, Keegan, Keegan Murray. Keegan Murray is one of the upperclassmen in the draft, you know, and as we 
always, you know, always talk about is a situation where the, 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 the older you are at draft time, for some reason your ceiling or your potential is not as high as someone who's being drafted at 19, 20, 21, or, or 18 or 19 years old, which always confuses me. Like, wait a minute. So if you draft someone at 21, 22, what do you mean their ceiling isn't as high? What, what, what exactly does that mean? That means that what? When did your ceiling? Where, where is your ceiling? So you're basing on his ceiling not being high at 22 as being what? 25, 26, 27? What does that mean? So someone who's only three years younger than someone, if someone is being drafted at 18, someone being drafted at 21, we draft the person at 18 because he has a higher upside. He has a higher ceiling. Well, wait a minute. The guy who's 21 is only three years older. What, what exactly does that mean? What that means is, is that we don't know. We're, we're basing our, our, our we're, we're basing our, his ceiling is higher based on the unknown. Well, he has great athleticism. I mean, his motor is awesome. So we can project a little bit better of what he can become than someone who has shown us a little bit more of his game to say, oh, well, then he's event- eventually he's going to be this. Damn, I'm sorry. What year was Michael Jordan? How old was Michael Jordan when he was drafted? How was the upside for Michael Jordan? How was the upside for Tim Duncan? David Robinson didn't join the San Antonio Spurs until he was about 24. How was his upside? Patrick Ewing played four years at Georgetown. How did his upside go? Akeem played three years at the uh, University of Houston. How was his upside? How did his upside turn out? What are we talking about here? Where are we going with here? So that, that's one of those situations where the Sacramento Kings made the decision and it's a situation where because it's Vivek and it's because Sacramento, then obviously if they drafted Keegan Murray, obviously Jaden Ivey should have been the choice. Jaden Ivey is going to be the better player, blah, 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 all of that type of stuff, based mainly because the Sacramento Kings on who they chosen. Well, let me tell you something, man, and look, Sacramento going for the playoffs, hadn't made the playoffs in 17 years, looking to uh, have a team win now. So Keegan Murray is a player that can help them win sooner rather than later. More of a finished product than Jaden Ivey, who you would have to wait a more a couple of more years for him to have the impact. But uh, as things are turning right now, Jade, uh, Keegan Murray might not be the rookie of the year. That might be um, Banchero because he's going to put up a lot of shots and a lot of points for a team in Orlando that's going to be lucky to win 30 games. But if you're speaking about what rookie might have the biggest impact on his team when you're dealing with winning and losing, could be Murray. Man averaged 20 points a game, 8 rebounds for the Kings in 3 California Classic games earlier in the month of July. Then he's up there going off for over 23 points and 7 rebounds per game in the Vegas Summer League. Now, again, look, I'm not saying that's going to translate to Keegan Murray coming in year one and, you know, doing the same type of thing or putting up the same type of numbers. But, man, it it gives you a little bit of an opportunity to say that, wait a minute here. You're speaking about the Sacramento Kings maybe having themselves a player who can contribute immediately toward the team that, that's, that's this dying to get into the playoffs. Begging. Strong aspiration to get into the playing game. And now you have a team to build on, if you're speaking about De'Aaron Fox, who's 24. 
Sabonis, who's 26, and Murray, who's 21, that young core, they're not ready to um, challenge the Golden States of the world or the Phoenix of the world and deal with Chris Pauls of the world. But you take a look at that young core in Sacramento, at least if you're a Sacramento King fan and what you saw from Summer League is some of the things in Murray's play that could translate over to helping the success of the Kings this year. You have to say to yourself, man, holy shit, we might be pretty fucking damn close to making the playoffs. That's not an unrealistic goal. It's 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 ambitious. When you're speaking about the Western Western Conference contenders being Golden State and the Clippers and Memphis and Dallas and Phoenix and Denver and Minnesota and New Orleans, that's ambitious, but uh, hope is a great thing. Hope is the most important thing. Shawshank Redemption, bitches. Go out and get yourself and watch yourself the greatest movie of the past couple of years. All right, I'm out of here. <laughs> With that being said, I am out of here. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. Again, the next episode of Wendell's World of Sports will be up as far as the YouTube episode is concerned in the next couple of days. But uh, really much appreciate you listening to my podcast. Again, as in closing, in conclusion, listen, learn from those of a different race, a different gender, different political background, different side of the track, different side of the globe, different, uh, you know, all those type of things. Learn from someone differently and then pass it on to your children, pass it on to the younger ones so we can see what we can do to lay the foundation to uh, for our children and their children to live in a world where everything is not judged on what uh, what your religion is and what your skin color is and what gender are you and all those type of things if we could do that man it would be awesome really wouldn't wendell's world of sports yours truly wendell wallace get me out of here with some music you're leaving for a long